So did you hear now the reading of God's word? This morning we're continuing on in our uh, little summer series through the Psalms. Today is Psalm 83. So we invite you to follow along uh, in your pew Bible or on the screen. Psalm 83. This is the word of the Lord. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let us let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Ashur has also joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like a whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Amen. This is the word of God. Let me say another prayer for us as we transition. Father, teach us this morning from this text. There is certainly some... uh, historical divide between us and this text that was just read. So teach us, bring this into our current day for us. May we receive what you want us to hear this morning and walk away more faithful than as we came in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse one is the prayer of this Psalm. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. That's the prayer. That's the part that's probably the most relatable in this prayer so far, or in this psalm so far, is the first line, which is the the prayer, the cry of the heart, which just as a reminder, this is what the psalms are. And this is why the psalms are beautiful to us, is that they are the cries of the soul. They are the the soul being poured out onto a piece of paper uh, for all of us to read. And I think think all of us can relate to the earnestness and the honesty of many of the Psalms. Today is a little bit more direct, but it's still something I think that we can relate to, uh, especially if the Holy Spirit pricks our heart a little bit. And that's what we're praying for this morning. So why why is this the prayer for God not to be silent? 
Why is Asaph, so we're in this kind of section of the Psalms where Asaph, the choir director of David, is writing these Psalms. Why is he praying for God not to keep silence or to not be at peace or to not be still? He's, he's inviting and invoking God to be active and to speak back to him. Why does Asaph want that? And then we get the answer pretty quickly in verse 2 is that there are enemies around them. Enemies are present. And so there's a few things we need to talk about today that are not particularly comfortable, but that I think can be particularly useful to us today since we're in this safe space together. Number one is prayer. So this is a prayer of Asaph. So we're going to dive deep into understanding another importance and mode of prayer. And number two is our enemies or maybe more particularly God's enemies, or maybe even more particularly those who view God's people as their enemies, the theme of enemies and prayer. Those are the two big things that we're going to be looking at this morning. Psalm 83, if you allow it to, if you allow it to do so, has a way of probing our hearts, I think. Do you have enemies? How do you feel about your enemies? What is the role of prayer and how should you pray in relationship to those who could be described as enemies, either from their perspective or from your perspective? So let's start maybe briefly, we'll try to be brief, with the idea of enemies. It's worth mentioning that enemies are mentioned 104 times in the Psalms. So you could say Israel had an enemy problem in their day. And if you look at Israel on a map, current day or in ancient times, you'll notice that Israel is surrounded by a whole lot of other nations. And this, again, this is actually pretty much still the case today. Israel is right in the middle of the Middle East, and there's a lot of little nations around them. And a lot of them are considered political uh, enemies of sorts. And so clearly, The idea of Israel feeling like they are opposed is a theme throughout the Old Testament and something that the psalm writers were particularly aware of because they seem to write about it a whole lot, this idea of being attacked or opposed or threatened by those around them. And so verses 2 through 8 kind of introduce us to the enemies that are around Israel at this time. But just to kind of introduce it, um, as you know, I have two children, so happy Father's Day to me. Thank you. Uh, I have two children, and they, are, they just finished kindergarten and second grade. And the, the school my kids go to, they, they're allowed to, well, they have recess throughout the day on the playground at their school. But also after school, they're allowed to go out to the playground and play a little bit too. So I get to kind of see um, children playing with one another from grades K through six, really. Um, and it's pretty interesting to watch alliances form in grade school. Little pockets of children that align together and sometimes oppose one another. And we get to hear the drama uh, that comes back to our house sometimes about different um, friends and enemies. The word enemies actually has been used before. I think that's something that's interesting. Even among small children, this idea of some people are gathering together, some people are against one another, but this is a playground thing that even from early age, this idea of alliances and enemies begin to form. And I think 
it's probably safe to say that life itself is in some sense just a grade school playground all grown up. Like, all of us probably still have alliances or people we like or don't like. We cluster together. We put our hands up against others. We have a way of it kind of being one big giant playground, Earth, where enemies are, like, we can all identify to this idea of people that don't get along or that do get along. And so Psalm 83 certainly brings this up for us, and it gives us a couple of really clear ways of, firstly, how we identify enemies. And so, again, a grade school playground, you kind of see how enemies are identified or friends are identified. Psalm 83 gives us four things right away that identify who Israel's enemies are. And it helps us, I think, even to kind of figure this out. How do we identify who enemies might be? You know, verse 2, it talks about uproars. Your enemies make an uproar. So, you know, enemies are kind of people that are loud. You know, the Hebrew word means thunder. You know, think about, like, we had a few storms in Salem this week. You probably heard some thunder roll in. You can't really avoid thunder. It kind of imposes itself on you. You hear it. It shakes your house. It can cause um, turmoil, even. You can't miss it. So enemies, in a really clear sense, are not quiet, but they're pretty intentional. They make themselves known to you. Uh, Verse 3, it talks about, it says, these people lay crafty plans. They consult together. And so there's a sneakiness about enemies. They are, the Hebrew word means shrewd or even prudent. You know, they're kind of planning this thing out. It's not a random occurrence. It's not like, oh, I accidentally became your enemy. It's like this intentional sneakiness or even conspiring behind the scenes to make things difficult for someone else. The third thing, verse 4, this is when they get a little bit more bold and direct. It says, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let them be remembered no more. Um, The idea of threatening violence. Uh, It kind of means just like what it sounds like. There's just bad intentions from one person to another, from one group to another. And then the last thing, verse 5, it says they conspire together with one accord. And even more interestingly, it says against you they make a covenant. What an Old Testament word to use here. Up until this point, the idea of covenant in the Old Testament has pretty much been God's people, you know, God forming a covenant with Israel, a covenant of faithfulness, a covenant of I am sticking with you, Israel. You are my people. I'm going to be faithful to you. And yet here we see enemies forming a covenant against Israel, opposite of what God does for his people. And so you have these sides here. An enemy gathers in unity against them, going as far as making a covenant together. So those are some identification things that Israel has used to say, this is the reason why these folks are enemies to us. All four of those things. They're loud, they're sneaky, they're violent, they form an alliance, a covenant. These folks are enemies. There's not, you can't really mistake it for anything else. They are against us. Why is identification even important for Israel or for us? Um, I get the impression, because I kind of felt this myself as I began to think through this week. I began to ask myself, who are my enemies? And I began to realize that I kind of avoid that thought. 
I, I don't really go through the process of, of identifying enemies. And I think that's good in one sense. I'm going to get to reasons why in just a moment. But, but I do think there's some reasons why identifying enemy behavior is, is, a, is an okay thing. For one, it's reality. It's reality. Like I mentioned, in terms of grade school playgrounds, this is just kind of part of being in a broken world. Um, it, you know, by identifying our enemies or those who are enemies against us, it prevents us from being naive and just saying, I want everybody to like me. Or I hope we all can all just get along. Like that's a good dream and a good prayer, but in some sense, it's not reality. And so by identifying this person or this group is actually anti-me, it does help just establish reality. It helps us to admit that we will always have some kind of opposition in the world. And as parents, I think you can identify with this because the first time your kid feels opposed, it hurts. And there's some kind of wisdom from a parent to say, this is just part of being a person in the world. Not everybody is going to like you, unfortunately, as much as we wish we would. But secondly, it's also corrective or humbling to identify enemies because as we talk through that list, we probably can sense that, and we should sense, that actually we have done some of those things to other people as well. Have I sneakily conspired against someone? Have I even thought about, I wish this person wasn't around, like violently wiping them out in my mind? Or have I gossiped and conspired others against someone in a covenant kind of way to box them out? Um, have I made an uproar against someone when they did something against me? You know, so I, there is a corrective humbling part where we realize that the finger also begins to point back at me too of I've done this to others too. And this is where the reality of being a sinner comes in. You know, the Bible, especially the New Testament, of course, you know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so sin is in all of us. And by identifying these aspects in others, we also begin to identify them and acknowledge them in ourselves as well. So that's identifying our enemies. But one thing extra that uh, Israel does here in this text here is they name their enemies specifically. And you heard me read them. Uh, which is why I didn't, I didn't uh, volunteer this text for someone else to read this morning because of the names on the list. So again, you're welcome. I took the bullet for you in terms of reading these ancient Near Eastern uh, nations' names. There are 10 names listed in Psalm 83. They're, they're real countries, real people that, it, that existed in history. Some of them obviously exist into today even. Um, but they, if you actually look on a map of ancient Israel, these nations literally encircle Israel from the north to the east, to the south, to the west. They are a literal circle around Israel. Israel is encircled with opposing nations. Why is this important to name enemies? I think this is a really important thing to note. By naming your enemies, saying the name of their nation, or maybe in, in your case or in my case, the name of a person, or the name of a political party, or the name of someone who you feel like is against you, by naming them, 
And I would, I would even say, I would really encourage you, name the individual person in your mind. It humanizes them. It reminds you that they are a real person who was created by God in the same way that you were created, endowed with the same image of God, the same potential to know God and to bless the world as you have been. And yet, like you and I, they are sinners. They are fallen. They are flawed. They may be further away from God than you are, but they are made in God's image. By naming them, it reminds you that they are humans and not some monster, not some evil villain from a Marvel movie. They are real human people who have real experiences, real stories, real struggles, most of which we will never know the full extent of. We don't know the things that people have gone through, but by naming them, it humanizes them to us, no matter the evil or atrocity or difficulty that we're experiencing because of them. And then from that, it softens our heart towards them. I think giving a name to people softens them towards us right away. It leads us to pray for them. It's easier to pray for a name than it is an idea or an ideology or a party or an object. So name your enemies, just like Israel did, and it leads you to pray for them. Now, it needs to be said here that it's interesting that this text is quick to say, because I've, I've, I've already found myself stumbling over this as I've begun this sermon. These are stated as God's enemies, not Israel's enemies necessarily. You notice here a couple of times it says, uh, verse 2, For behold, your enemies as in God's enemies. Uh, They lay crafty plans against your people, God's people. So the, the psalmist here is saying, he's really resisting calling them my enemies. He's saying, God, these are, these are people that are enemies to you. These are not my enemies yet. How do we know who God's enemies are? How does Asaph know who God's enemies are? For instance, uh, You know, the Bible, as I said, in the Psalms, it mentions enemies 104 times. But throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the idea of opposition or persecution or or even enemies explicitly is used quite a bit. Um, In the Old Testament, obviously, there's a big big conversation about this with regards to the promised land. So God gives the nation of Israel a land to which they are to go and inhabit. And the people that are there are in the way of God's plan for the people to come. And so if you're against Israel, you're against God in the Old Testament terminology, to put it kind of bluntly. But in the Bible as a whole, this idea of God's enemies, those are simply people who are against God's good way in the world. And before we begin to get too distant from that idea, we need to recognize that most of the New Testament, when it refers to God's enemies, or those who are opposed to God, points the finger right back at us right away. Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. But you see there the assumption first that we, either Israel or God's people, we were enemies of God. Colossians 1.21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, God reconciled. 
James 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, humans here, because of sin, are in a natural opposition to God if we remain away from him. And so this isn't necessarily a, you know, ancient Gentile nations versus Israel or people outside the church versus those inside the church. This is humanity as fallen sinful people against a holy and righteous God. And so this means that most of the time the enemy is actually me. Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into your way everlasting. I need to deal with my sin. I need to be changed from my enemy status to God first. So the Bible actually never refers to enemies as other people in relationship to us. It never does. I, I, I looked throughout as many of the scriptures as I could find. And it never seems to be that, that God's people view other humans as enemies. Because first of all, we're the, we're the primary enemy of God. We need to have our heart reconciled to God first. And then once we are reconciled to God, then it's a whole different conversation. The conversation turns into a, a prayerful conversation. I'm gonna get to that in just a moment. But before I get to that, the only real exclusive enemy that is just unabashedly mentioned in the Bible is Satan. He is said to be God's direct enemy. So Matthew 13, Luke 10, several other places, it says Satan is the enemy. He is the one deceiving the world against God. But it's only the world viewing us or God as their enemy, never the other way around. So actually, we should kind of eliminate the term enemy from our vocabulary with regards to other people. Why? Because Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, he says this. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And so this is where this has to turn for us. What does it mean to pray for our enemies? What does it mean to love our enemies? What do we learn from Psalm 83 about those things? There's three different types of prayers, I think, really two that we see in Psalm 83, but there's a third one that we can extrapolate from it. The first type of prayer, in, beginning in verse 9, is what I would say is a, an, an instinct prayer or a heart prayer or an unfiltered prayer or just a, I don't know, throw-up prayer, just the first thing prayer, just a, the very first prayer you want to pray. Whenever you're feeling opposed or surrounded or all those four things we mentioned earlier by those who are enemies, you just pray these instinct prayers. These are the unfiltered wishes of the heart. These are the, you would never admit this aloud, but I know you say it in your heart. I wish they would die. I wish they would go away. I wish they would just disappear. I wish God would just eliminate them from my life. You would never say that aloud, would you? But in our hearts, we do. When we read Psalm 83, it feels scandalous the way that this guy is praying, right? Do to them as you did to Midian. 
You know, so go back and read some of these stories from Judges chapter 7 or Judges chapter 4 or the Chronicles. You know, you know the, the psalmist here is praying, God, do, do, do to these people what you did to some of these other enemies of yours. Wipe them out. We would never pray a prayer like that, would we? But we would. These are, these are called imprecatory psalms. Psalms of their prayers against people, prayers of judgment or destruction against people. These are the, these are the, the psalms we, we kind of pretend were not in the Bible, that we wished were not there, that are a little bit too direct, a little bit too harsh, a little bit too violent. But these are instinct prayers. These are prayers for people to be eliminated because they are, they are harsh against us. They are opposing us. But I'm guessing, again, that most of us have prayed prayers like this in our hearts. Are these bad prayers to pray? Are we to model our prayers after imprecatory psalms? Psalms like Psalm 7, Psalm 35, Psalm 55, 58, 69, 79, 83, 109, 137. Are we to pray prayers like this like still today? Well, the answer is, the answer is yes and no. The answer is Yes, in the sense of our honesty and our desire for justice against those who are providing injustice against the world. I guess that's an okay thing to continue on. You know, God does not certainly want to allow wickedness or injustice to continue. And he certainly doesn't want us to be fake in our prayers or to pretend like evil or wickedness doesn't exist. So in that sense, there's a, there's a yes to that answer. But there's a no in the answer in the sense of our our prayers should not remain there. You see, the advantage we have today is that we know Jesus. Asaph didn't know about the cross. He didn't have the answer to how God was going to defeat injustice or evil or destruction or death. And so he prayed these, praying that God would reveal himself in some kind of way, and the only way he knew how, by looking back at history. But as Tim Keller says about the imprecatory Psalms, he says this. He says, basically realize that calls for justice are absolutely right and remind us how important God's holiness and justice are. But secondly, recognize that the psalmist did not have the justice of God completely satisfied in Christ. Thus, we pray for our enemies and not to wish them ill. Yet as Christians, we can pray these psalms as longings for social justice and hatred against the powers and principalities behind the world. Kind of like what I preached on last Sunday about the the evil that is behind us in the world and the spiritual world that's forming against the world. And so we go from instinct prayers to a different kind of prayer. This is the second kind of prayer that Psalm 83 leads us into. And this is what I would call a transformed prayer or a sanctified prayer. And you begin to get a, a hint of this in verses 16, 17, and 18. This is a, these are a little bit of, I kind of bluntly called them bipolar prayers, because it's almost like Asaph can't decide what he's praying for here. Verse 16, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. <laughs> you feel the extremes here? Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. He, he cries out with the instinct prayers at the beginning, you know, 
die. I will eliminate them. But by the end, he's saying, I pray that they would come to know you, that they would see your face, that they would know your name, that they would turn to you. Do you see how an instinct prayer here is being transformed into a a sanctified prayer? He is being softened as he has as he has named and identified his enemies or God's enemies. And as he begins the process of prayer, it's almost as if God is softening his heart towards them as he is praying. How do you get this kind of prayer? Time with God, sitting with God, identifying and naming the opposition or the enemy or the struggle that you're feeling. And these may feel like scattered prayers or even forced prayers to try to pray for those who are hard to pray for. But by just getting prayers out, by forcing them out, whether aloud or on paper, as Asaph did, they begin to change our heart. God's grace begins to emerge in the middle of that prayer. And the Psalms actually train us how to pray. Eugene Peterson has said, left to ourselves, we will pray to some kind of God who speaks like what we are hearing or to the part of God we manage to try to understand. But what is critical is that we speak to the God who speaks to us and to everything he speaks to us, the Psalms train us in that conversation. So praying for our enemies actually changes us well before it changes them. You know, throughout the, New, the Old Testament, even, the first call to Israel is for Israel to repent, to acknowledge their sins, to pray for their hearts to be changed. You know, Second Chronicles 7, it says, If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in that place. And then Ezekiel 36, it promises, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's what I think is happening in this prayer is an instinct hard prayer turns into a transformed, sanctified prayer, a heart of flesh that God gives us. God changes and sanctifies our prayers on the way up. And yet still there's more that needs to be done. And so the last point that we need to talk about is even a sanctified prayer isn't enough. There has to be something more. Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Where else will you hear a word like that? That is completely counter-cultural, completely counter-cancel culture today, where we just want to eliminate the enemy from our midst. And so we have to learn what I would say the last kind of prayer is the Jesus prayers. The prayers where our enemies turn into our neighbor and we love them with the love 
of Jesus. Jesus loved the Psalms. He prayed them, sang them, studied them. They were, they were his scriptures. He quoted them many times, but he also lived them out in the world. And so Jesus prayed and lived for his enemies. You know, the Lord's Prayer. When they say, Jesus, teach us to pray, he taught them the Lord's Prayer where he prays specifically for enemies, for those who trespass against us or for those who are indebted to us. Jesus taught his disciples to pray and then showed them how to live in relationship to their enemies by being gentle while being oppressed, refusing to speak up for himself when the cross was coming to him, by offering forgiveness for those who put him on the cross while on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. By accepting persecution, because persecution is promised for those who are faithful to Jesus. And we kind of get that part, but here's the part that I don't think we hear talked about enough. Accepting persecution, but rejecting popularity. Jesus did not receive this, this idol of popularity, but instead he resisted it. John Stott, a pastor in London, has said, uh, it's impossible to be faithful and popular at the same time. It just is. And so I would just say, be a little cautious of popularity in the Christian world, especially in in an increasingly post-Christian Western society we live in. Tim Keller again says it this way. He says, if Christians are living and speaking as they should, they will be attractive to non-believers, but they'll also be persecuted. And so Keller says, if you only, if you only see opposition and you don't see many conversions, or if you only see popularity and no persecution, you're probably not living as you should because you probably will always receive a little bit of both. Certainly Jesus will, will bring conversions your way. He, will, he wants to see his kingdom grow. But if you're not receiving a little pushback for giving the gospel to others, you're probably not being bold enough, not being quite courageous enough. Jesus never gave up on his enemies. He was continually in close proximity to them. So Jesus took heart instinct prayers and the transformed sanctified prayers given by a rich life with God and lived them out himself. And so for us, we model our lives after Jesus, recognizing that that's in one sense impossible for us to consistently do, but it's also, that's our model. That's how we live in a world where there is opposition to the church and to the things we teach or the truths that we proclaim And so just to conclude, the last thing I'll note is just the the quote that's on the front of your bulletin today. It's a quote by a man named Frederick Buechner, who was a a Christian theologian from previous century. And this, this just resonated deeply with me. Maybe it would for you as well. He says this, love for equals, that's human. Meaning we all should do that. Love for the less fortunate, for the poor, for the needy. That's beautiful. Love for those that are more fortunate, for those that are rich and famous and don't have any need for us, but we love them anyway, that's rare. But love for your enemies, that's divine. And Jesus shows us that truly. 
So may we model our lives after the risen Jesus himself. Let me close us in prayer. And we're gonna sing a beautiful song that talks about how this can be possible through the cross that breaks down that dividing wall. Let me close us in prayer and we'll sing this song together as our closing prayer. Father, we, we, uh, we don't wanna beat around the bush in our world about the reality of opposition or even, even enemies. I think we all feel that. I don't, I don't think we like to admit it. I think we, we wish that everybody would just like us. Everyone would receive, would, would receive from us truth and kindness at the same time, that we would kind of all be in harmony. But the reality is, in a broken world, the good news it is probably first received with resistance. But it is beautiful for the world. So God, I pray that you would Give each of us a way to live this out in our life, probably with real people that we can identify with right now, those that maybe would be considered enemies against us. Help us to be gracious and gentle and loving. Help us to be like Jesus, who didn't just pray for his enemies, but loved them with his full life. So Lord, teach us to pray for our enemies in a way that would bring them to you so that their lives may be transformed just as we are being transformed day by day. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.